1: The European Union expresses solidarity with the U.S. over the SolarWinds incident. The U.K. joins the U.S. in attributing the incident to Russia. Russia objects to U.S. sanctions and hints strongly that it intends to retaliate. IBM discloses new cyber threats to the COVID-19 vaccine cold chain. Iran says Natanz is back in business. Kevin McGee from Microsoft looks at the security of startups. Our guest is Brad Ree from the IOXT Alliance with results from their mobile IoT benchmark report. And data breaches hit people who park and people who read. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 16th, 2021. The European Council has expressed soft solidarity with the U.S. on the impact of malicious cyber activities, notably the SolarWinds cyber operation, which the United States assesses, has been conducted by the Russian Federation. The EC's principal interest, as expressed in its statement, is to call for the development of international norms to inhibit attacks on the ICT supply chain, in particular, that call is consistent with the aspirations expressed by the White House in yesterday's statement. ZDNet says that the UK has joined the US in attributing the solar winds compromise to the Russian organs. Russia dismisses the British stance as idle Me Tooism. Whitehall is just going along with its Yankee cousins. The Guardian quotes Sergei Naryshkin, head of Russia's SVR, that's Cozy Bear, if you're keeping track of the malign menagerie on your scorecard, saying that U.S. sanctions introduced yesterday were an unfriendly step, which in his opinion is also poorly considered, that would contribute to the destruction of international stability. The Hill reports that Russian authorities denounce the sanctions as illegal and rumble about retaliation in kind. Reuters quotes Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov as saying, quote, we condemn any intentions to impose sanctions, consider them illegal, and in any case, the principle of reciprocity operates in this area. Reciprocity so that our own interests are insured in the best possible way. End quote. That is, what's sauce for the Moscow goose is equally sauce for the U.S. gander. Sanction us and we'll sanction you back. Reciprocity isn't necessarily symmetrical. Indeed, in this case, it can't be. The U.S. isn't vulnerable to Russian economic restrictions, for example, in the way interruption of trade with the U.S. and its allies is a pain point for Moscow. But expect such measures as expulsion of a comparable number of U.S. diplomats from their Russian stations. This happened during the last round of reprisal for Russian hacking when the previous U.S. administration expelled 60 Russian diplomats and Russia responded by giving 60 American diplomats the boot. Immediately after imposing the sanctions, U.S. President Biden waved the carrot of high-level talks to ameliorate tensions between Washington and Moscow, NBC News reports. The U.S. sanctions against Russia have received general bipartisan approval from Congress. If anything, congressional barking suggests that Capitol Hill is ready for an even harder line than the one the administration has actually taken. Among the Russian organizations affected by U.S. sanctions were six companies. The U.S. Treasury Department names them as Positive Technologies, ERA Technopolis, Neobit, Advanced System Technology, AST, Passit, and SVA. The biggest fish in Treasury's net is Positive Technologies. Quote Positive Technologies is a Russian IT security firm that supports Russian government clients, including the FSB. Positive Technologies provides computer network security solutions to Russian businesses, foreign governments, and international companies, and hosts large-scale conventions that are used as recruiting events for the FSB and GRU, end quote. MIT Technology Review devotes a long article this week to Positive Technologies. It's a billion-dollar operation, a tech unicorn whose research into vulnerabilities is widely respected and often quoted... That's fine, of course, but U.S. intelligence services have also concluded that Positive Technologies provides offensive cyber tools, consulting on such operations, and even direct operational support to Russian espionage agencies. Positive Technologies works with a range of Russian agencies, but it's thought to be especially close to the FSB, whom it provides exploit discovery, malware development, and even reverse engineering of cyber capabilities. A note from our linguistics desk, Positive Technologies has an English name. A number of media outlets have spelled the company's name in a way that makes it look Russian, but it's not. It's simply pronounced Positive Technologies, transliterated into Cyrillic, and then transliterated back into the Roman alphabet. IBM warns that the COVID-19 vaccine cold chain, the refrigerated logistics necessary to ship and store vaccines, remains an attractive target for active cyber attack. The company's security X-Force says that it's recently discovered an additional 50 files tied to spear phishing emails that targeted 44 companies in 14 countries in Europe, North America, South America, Africa, and Asia. The campaign impersonates an executive from Hair Biomedical, IBM says, going on to explain that this is a major Chinese biomedical company that is purported to be the world's only complete cold-chain provider. So why would someone be interested in these particular targets? The vaccine cold-chain is an international one, with participation by companies from many nations active in several sectors, and by governments, international organizations like UNICEF, and various non-governmental organizations. So, there's a great deal to find. IBM recommends that everyone involved with the cold chain stay vigilant and that they check True Star Station for updates. Whatever somebody, probably Israel, did at Natanz, probably a bomb, the enrichment facility seems back in business and now producing 60% uranium-235, or so Iranian authorities tell Reuters. And finally, are yins thinking of parking in Pittsburgh? Yins out of luck. A Pittsburgh Parking Authority's app has been breached by some jagoff, the Pittsburgh Tribune says, although not exactly in those words. About 20 million drivers, or at least parkers, are affected, and since the Steel City has just north of 300,000 residents, the arithmetic-savvy listener will soon conclude that this must be wider than the Monongahela Valley, deeper than the Allegheny River, and it is. Yins don't even need to be a Carnegie Mellon grad to figure that out. It's a third-party problem deriving from a breach at the Park Mobile Service detected at the end of March. Why do we mention Pittsburgh in particular? We just like talking about yins, and besides, we saw the article in The
2: Trib.
1: It is becoming more and more the norm that if you buy any type of electronic device, there's a companion app that goes along with it. In my own life, I've got apps for my bathroom scale, lights and appliances, and even my son's fancy new electric scooter. The folks at the IOXT Alliance recently partnered with the team at Now Secure on a report titled Mobile IoT Benchmark The State of Mobile App Security. Brad Ree is CTO at the IOXT Alliance.
0: So the IOXT Alliance is an organization of leading um, IoT and device manufacturers who are really working to basically address the cybersecurity concerns for smart homes, smart building, and cellular IoT spaces all of which have nothing to do with this uh, mobile application. However, in the uh, last uh, six months, what we did was we realized that in all of these connected devices, um, there's the device, but there's also the uh, companion application. So from that, we've launched a mobile application certification program, and we've worked with Now Secure, who's one of our authorized labs, to help set up the uh, this certification program, and more importantly they uh, they went and did a market survey of what the landscape of of connected apps looked like and and so that was the uh, genesis of uh, where the report came from, with many of these findings ultimately being rolled into our certification program
1: hmm. Are there any trends here in terms of you know, certain types of devices tend to be more attentive when it comes to security?
0: So the biggest trend that I actually see um, out of this is that uh, many of the, the developers or at least the, the managers over the development teams were surprised at the results. So um for the most part many people um you know think that they're following you know best practices and everything but it's only when you sort of get that third party assessment that um libraries may have been included that had some issues or you know developer code that was left in and not fully fully thought through was was left and exposed. So like I say unfortunately the biggest trend is um a little bit of a surprise on on many of the developer side
1: hmm, interesting now tell me about the process of certification what uh, what do folks have to do to go down that pathway and what are the benefits
0: Sure. Well, we we have a couple different ways that we're certifying devices and everything. So we went and first defined a, uh, a a standard that is testable and scalable. And what we really mean by that is it has to be able to address the hundreds of thousands of uh, of devices or the millions of apps out there and everything. So we have a a self-cert program where many developers can come in and basically run through the questionnaire and everything themselves. Or we also have working with labs like Now Secure and, and some of our other authorized labs can have third party assessments. And then a bunch of our labs have also been working on, like, like Now Secure has some tools that they offer that manufacturers can do some automated scans to look for the low hanging fruit of, uh, of the security issues.
1: Are there any things that that folks can do who are the consumers of of these devices in terms of, you know, having any assurances that the the combos that they're using are are as secure as they, they, they think they should be?
0: yeah there there's a couple of things so there there is a little bit of a challenge, which is where IOxt Alliance is really trying to step in with having a certification that is public and visible and everything else. Um, but you know i I would uh, caution consumers when they're installing apps and and permissions are being requested, they should think twice about, what that permission is. Don't just blanket accept everything. I'll throw a great example. We uh, we had a uh, took a look at a. Uh, it was a manufacturer of air conditioners, and hmm. their their mobile app for controlling an air conditioner was actually asking for both access to the microphone and recorded sessions. And I contend there's very few air conditioners that need to have access to any kind of recorded <laughs> material. <laughs> I, I concur. I concur. <laughs> Absolutely. So you know, some of those, uh, some of those uh, you know, those kind of things really definitely jump out. And you should just take a deep breath not accept everything that's required or, or use at least temporary permissions.
1: That's Brad Ree from the IOXT Alliance. The report is titled Mobile IoT Benchmark, the State of Mobile App Security. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. And joining me once again is Kevin McGee. He's the Chief Security and Compliance Officer at Microsoft Canada. Kevin, it's great to have you back. Um, I, I know you do a lot of work with startups, and um, in particular, you do work with startups who are not necessarily in the cybersecurity realm. I was curious, you know, what sort of insights can you share from the work you do with those sorts of organizations?
2: Yeah, thanks for having me again, Dave. Uh, previous, obviously, to my role at Microsoft, I was uh, involved in a number of startups, uh, some successful, some for not. I definitely have a preference for which ones uh, I enjoyed being <laughs> a part of. But, um, you know, a lot of the cybersecurity startups really think about cybersecurity up front and, and build it into their uh, their internal processes or not. Other startups that are not based on security or don't have a product based on security really have to keep focused on a lot of different things. And security might be pushed down and down in the priority list which can be for you know what is perceived as the right reason. i give you the example. If you've got a product where you want user adoption uh, to happen really quickly so you can demonstrate to funders that you need more money, adding multi-factor authentication or other sort of friction for security will actually decrease your user adoption. So making those decisions uh, based on growth alone can leave you exposed to a lot of security problems. Working with the startups to have that discussion up front to, to really look at you know how do we manage that risk uh, is something I really enjoy and, and feel adds a lot of value to uh, to these startup founders.
1: What, do, what are some of the advantages that startups have these days when it comes to their security posture versus organizations that have been around for a while?
2: Well, they can take a lot of uh, advantage of decades of best practices of uh, cybersecurity. So we've got cloud computing that comes with a lot of Defaults turned on. Uh, most of the users and startups are, are, you know, familiar with things like multi-factor authentication or DevSecOps or whatnot. But they also don't have this sort of legacy of policies, procedures, or or infrastructure that was built during a different time with different legislation, or um, it needs to be retrofitted. So they get to start from scratch. So taking advantage of getting those norms. And leaning in on uh, what's already available, but also then balancing that with uh, making sure that you're not creating additional uh, technical debt um, by by avoiding uh, security for, like I mentioned before, uh, user adoption or other things that are relevant to the business uh, can still be a challenge.
1: Does having so many things that we rely on, so many of the the technical aspects of running a business, having them be cloud-based these days, uh, is that... Is that overall
2: an advantage in your estimation? It is because, again, it provides a lot of security by default. It allows a lot of scale. You can very quickly and cheaply scale a startup. My first one was in the 90s. We had to buy physical servers or build them. It was really difficult to provide that level of scale if you needed uh, compute power, which is now really cheaply available and securely available. But it also accumulates a lot of data and a lot of uh, assets um, in one place that are, are really valuable uh, for hackers to go after. So again, it, it's a uh, one of those balancing acts. How do you take full advantage of the, all the opportunities that cloud and new technologies offer, but making sure that you're also not becoming a very attractive target for hackers as well?
1: Do you suppose that there's a sort of a, a cultural evolution here where I'm thinking of, you know, when you start up a business, you, people will advise you that there are certain professionals you need to engage with. You, know, you need someone to help you with your insurance. You need a good lawyer, you know, those sorts of things. Are we approaching a point where uh, cybersecurity professionals are, are part of that
2: list? I would like to think so. Um, you know, having a great accountant keep make sure you don't get um, an audit. Uh, having a right. great lawyer uh, sets you up for success uh, if you are ever sued or whatnot. So, having a great cybersecurity professional at the beginning um, would would be a great addition to your team. But uh, often that's seen as an expense, or maybe an expense that could be pushed off or reprioritized to the future, generally to the detriment of the company. Should an event happen. But it's certainly something that uh, that startups could take full advantage of. Startups also have much more to lose than the average business. If there's um, in a compromise of a credit card, you might lose up to the credit card limit. Uh, if there's um, a business email compromise, uh, an invoice may be improperly paid. But if um, a startup really gets hacked, maybe their IP gets stolen and they, they um, have no reason to exist anymore. Or um, if there's reputational damage because of a hack, they can't get funding uh, and whatnot as well. So there's a lot more at risk uh, for an early stage startup uh, to get it wrong. And so it becomes super important to really get it right.
1: All right. Well, Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at theCyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Fights bad breath doesn't give you medicine breath. Listen for us on your Alexa Smart speaker, too. Be sure to check out Research Saturday and my conversation with Deepan Desai from Zscaler we are discussing a new Trojan malware that's using social engineering techniques and fake cybersecurity resume cover letters. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Puru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio.